Hello, everyone. On this episode of the Bible Archives, we are going to look at epiclesis, or divine liturgy, as it is sometimes called, communion, and mass as forms of Eucharist. So we're going to continue this conversation, and hopefully we'll be able to see some angles that might seem familiar and actually aren't, and even some angles that we might not normally consider. And so let's start with epiclesis. So if we were to look at Eucharist as what's called divine liturgy, this is a pretty Eastern perspective. I mean, specifically, this comes from the Eastern Orthodox Church. So those of us in the Western Church, there's a chance we've never even heard of this before. And epiclesis literally just means calling on high. So the focus of uh, divine liturgy, epiclesis, is to invoke the Spirit, and you're, you're involving the presence of the divine in the act of Eucharist. And so we're making a claim. Uh, when I say we're, I, I guess I'm not Eastern Orthodox. I wish I was. Uh, when epiclesis is used, it's making a claim that the central mechanism of Eucharist is the Spirit. So there's a lot of Trinitarian language. Um, there's uh, a lot of the nature of God uh, involved in this concept. But one way we can approach epiclesis is that our only job is to recognize that the Spirit is what makes communion and Eucharist possible. So one of the first issues that you're going to have as soon as you start talking about this is everybody probably has a perspective on what the Spirit is. And in my experience, people uh, are very adamant that the way that they understand the Spirit is the only way to understand the Spirit. And so if I was just to parse that out a little bit more, um, when you talk about the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost, the Spirit of God, um, you could also use the word essence, right? The Spirit of, the essence of God. Um, and the one way that I found helpful in how it's talked about is the animating presence of the divine. And I don't want to get into a whole thing about Trinity here. Uh, that is a worthwhile conversation. It's also very mysterious. It's a word that's not actually in the text, but has come about through tradition. It's been understood differently almost in every epoch of the church's history. In terms of Eucharist, though, we do have to ask the question, how is God present? And so using the language of spirit is helpful in that. And especially you kind of have to because epiclesis just means invoking the spirit, right? Calling on high. And so uh, how does all of this work? And the question I think one has to ask themselves is what do you believe about God's presence? And a conversation that we have here at the farmhouse a lot is uh, the difference and the interaction of transcendence and imminence. Now, last time when we talked about Eucharist as a memorial, we emphasized that the Western church tends to really like that. So even if you're looking at atonement theory, Western traditions tend to emphasize Jesus's death. 
Well, if we were to contrast that with the Eastern tradition that we're talking about here, they tend to emphasize the resurrection. And even when they're talking about atonement, the, the most important thing is incarnation. So there's obvious, and that's not the only difference between the Eastern and Western traditions, but there are obvious differences. And, and I really like holding them up side by side, and I do think the Western church could learn a lot from the Eastern tradition. But in this case, we have another example in that, you know, same that the Eastern tradition emphasizes incarnation and resurrection. Well, they emphasize incarnation because they're very concerned about how God is present. So okay. this, this question of transcendence and imminence, well, a lot of Western Christians emphasize transcendence. We want to talk about how uh, immaculate and superior and differentiated uh, God is. And I do think that is necessary. And I'm not saying that the Eastern traditions don't believe that. They do tend to emphasize, however, what's called imminence, which is how that transcendent, divine, absolute, singular being that is a source uh, involves itself within creation. And so when they're approaching Eucharist, it's not just they're going, well, the Spirit's really important here. They're going, the Spirit is a way of articulating that the divine is present in the midst of this. And then that does have some ramifications for um, how their version of Eucharist unfolds. Okay, so that's like, this is the ritual then that helps us to become aware of the fact that that eminence is in, present in the elements then. Is that what you would say? Um, it kind of makes the space for that to happen for us so that it's kind of um, the elements are transformed by spirit and that's the intention. But then what we then are, how we are transformed by the elements, that becomes the resulting action of that spirit. Is that be correct? Because yeah, when you say epiclesis, calling on high, invoking the spirit, you, you then have to go, so what's happening there? Okay. Is it that God's not imminently present and until we call on high uh you don't have it there and then all of a sudden it is once you've invoked the spirit and this is what we had talked about uh transubstantiation versus consubstantiation and then we threw out the one notion of ubiquitous presence mm -hmm. and when you're talking about imminence in general you have this problem is god present everywhere right um, or is God only in certain places, and therefore does God's presence need to be invoked? And again, I don't want to handle that whole conversation uh, quite yet, but I think generally the answer, at least according to Epiclesis, would be that God doesn't show up because we convinced God to. Right. It is more about what you said us becoming aware of. And that's been a theme throughout Eucharist uh, this whole time. Uh, God acting is not something that's really up to us. Yes. Whether or not we pay attention to it will determine how that's going to unfold in the world. Okay. So I think that understanding of transcendence and imminence does become a little bit crucial, I think, in general, within uh, how you perceive faith, but specifically in Eucharist. How is God present? God, how is God present? Well, 
God's imminence is actually a, 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 almost an absolute or, or a known, it's up to us to engage with that presence. And so that's kind of where this emphasis of the spirit okay. is coming from. Mm-hmm. I wonder if maybe we could have done this backwards because it's almost to me as if my talking about the Eucharist when we were talking about it being a Thanksgiving or we're talking about it being a memorial, this is humans interacting with it, noticing, confronting the mystery of God, and now it's God interacting with it, with the Spirit. So it's almost like here is God interacting with us through Spirit, and then we approach it with the Thanksgiving and the memorial idea of remembering those things. Do you think that's fair to say? Yeah, and if you think about the Thanksgiving and you think about the remembrance part what we can see now, if we kind of go back and recognize this this role of imminence in the process, is that what's what's accomplished that we're giving thanks to, uh, what we are remembering, all all of those components that we talked about last time, those are made valid by God's presence in them. Yeah, and so it it, it does become important to recognize. Okay, so we're we're celebrating, we're Thanksgiving, we're remembering, we're joining all that language that we use. And how is that possible? Well, Epiclesis would tell us because of the divine presence in those elements, in those situations, and in those things that we're celebrating and remembering. Okay. The point is that you don't have any of this without imminence. And Epiclesis, divine liturgy, is a way to emphasize that. Okay. Now, the next place this goes is... How do we interact with the Spirit? And then what does this idea of imminence and God's presence preceding uh, any of the, the elements or uh, acts that are embodied in communion and Eucharist, how does all that work? And part of this is, you know, first and foremost, us becoming and uh, opening up to God's work in our lives, in the church, in the world. And we emphasize that in Thanksgiving and remembering as well. Right. But we're going to emphasize now it's us opening up to, which implies that it's already happening, but we're not causing it to happen. We're opening ourselves up to it. And when we do that allows the transformation to happen. So all of that happening through epiclesis is important because transformation is the work of the spirit. And if that language is a little bit too, fundamental well you just rethink how you're saying it (laughs) okay uh transformation is uh it has its roots in the imminent presence essence animating presence of god okay so i don't i when i think of epiclesis i'm not getting way too into the the what is the spirit part i'm using that to go okay this is about you know we could ask the question Who's the primary actor, the primary cause of the effects of Eucharist? And when we say the Spirit, we're saying God because the transcendent has become imminent and caused these things. So I think that's why epiclesis is most important. And I think we, I think we mentioned this before in elevating God's role because we've asked the primary actor question um, before it's important that God does this because otherwise it's dependent on human beings who, 
you know, with moments of brightness, also have moments of, well, terror. <laughs> and so if, we're de- if, if any of this happening is dependent on humans, and even philosophically, we could go who are finite, who are contingent. Right, we have limitations. Yeah. Even just bound within our physical body and the way we interact with the world. We just yeah. simply can't know everything. So. so we wouldn't want the version of this that comes from limited, constrained beings. Right. And, you know, this is where somebody who, if you, if you come from the atheistic perspective, uh, you're going, so you're just trying to pull up some magic fairy tale card in order to explain away human limitations. It's like, hey, again, that's not the place for this conversation. Within the idea of communion, though, in Eucharist, if we're saying... If, if what is happening in Eucharist is true, which there's certainly a debate that could happen on whether or not it is, if it is true, we would use epiclesis to say, and it's not true because of us. Right. right? That's the emphasis here, at least. What happens then for us within the meal is the meal becomes what we would call a vehicle of grace. So when you say... You you had mentioned like becoming conscious of, right? Becoming mm-hmm. aware of, and that's part of it with the imminent conversation. But then it moves even further, in that it also makes us conscious of, aware of, and participant in what God is doing. And again, the emphasis there on what God is doing, what that transcendent being who has become imminent is doing. We're joining that now. Okay. Instead of us having to create it. So there's there's one element here that that's like, hey, the world doesn't depend on you. Mm-hmm. Um, and thank goodness. There, there's, a, yeah. there's a line in the Mishnah that says something along the lines of, um, you are not going to finish the work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a, so it, there's a partly like humble yourself there. It's <laughs> also a celebration of like, thank God this isn't dependent on me. Um, but it also emphasizes that because God has done this first, we don't get to determine the, the rules of engagement okay. for how it works. Mm-hmm. We are joining somebody else's work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this should cause Christians at least to take a back seat and going, and you think of, you think of like somebody like Bonhoeffer or Karl Barth who went, let's stop letting humans, especially human Christians, think they get to decide how this should look. Yeah. And they're obviously rebelling against Hitler and Nazism, so that's like an extreme case. But there is something about recognizing I don't get to pick and choose what this ought to look like. Now, of course, we still have to do interpretation and, and learning and figuring out what it is. None of us just inherently know, oh, this is the will of God and this is what every Eucharist oh. looks like in every single situation. Of course. You know? Um, so those are some of the effects that this has if you're taking this seriously. Okay. Um, I remember a couple of weeks ago and you were talking about, um, being on the throne and, and I believe it's a scripture and revelation and it's like, who's on the throne? It's not us. And that's actually a good thing because if you think about it, if you put yourself in that position, that could be actually very anxiety provoking. You are not Hmm. qualified for that. And so it's like to be able to say, yeah, I'm a part of this. I can do this, but it's not up to me. It almost is, is a good way. It's almost a way of putting us in place where now we know how to act and we're not putting ourselves in a situation where we are beyond our abilities to act. Yeah, and a lot of the self-help world is about empowering you as, yeah, as a I'm self. Yeah, I'm thinking of that. 
And I think one of the things the self-help world could do a little better is going, and you don't actually uh, have that much power anyways. Sure, because then you feel like, well, now I'm not doing enough if it doesn't work. We've talked recently about the idea that you are enough. Mm -hmm. And um, that's partly to rebel against the tapes in our head that tell us that we're not doing everything right or there's something missing or we're lacking something. But another way you could, another angle you could approach that from is going, you are enough because your expectations are really low anyways. <laughs> like you don't have to, all you have to do is do your role. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like what Paul says when he says, "Think, don't think more of yourself than is necessary. So you have the thought, yeah. I am a human being, I am a part of this story of God's will, but I also am not the person who has to uh, take care of it. So it kind of, it's like, yeah, it's a, a better healthy way to look at it. I and think. I, I would say when you're, Who's the primary actor, you know, invoking the spirit, paying attention in that way when it comes to Eucharist, that's the primary thing it accomplishes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes it cool. It's like we're part of this. We get to join in this thing. We get to be part of God's will and part of what is enacting in the world. And, yes. you know, without being responsible for it. So, Epiclesis, we are joining and responding to whatever Eucharist is about, which we handled some of that with Thanksgiving and uh, Remembrance Memorial. And we'll get into a couple more of those now. But whatever's happening in Eucharist, we are joining and we're okay. responding to. That's that's really why I think this connection exists. Now, let's move on to Eucharist as Mass. In particularly, I'm going to add a tag, Eucharist as Mass for the Kingdom. Um, and maybe a way to frame this is that there's a missional component to Eucharist. So if you come from the Catholic tradition, Mass is very familiar to you. If you come from the Catholic tradition and you left the Catholic tradition, you are currently wondering why would we think that Mass has anything good to say? So as someone who is not Catholic but has been around the Catholic world a decent amount, my take has been if the word Mass has been ruined for you, I'm sorry. Also, Catholics do not have a corner on the market for what Mass is. And their use of mass to describe a gathering, it's actually a really good way to describe what's going on in a gathering and therefore Eucharist. So mass just comes from the idea of sending forth. And in a traditional Catholic gathering, but I mean, I think this is true in most churches gathering, uh, there is a sending forth that happens at the end. Yeah. And that would happen immediately after Eucharist. And so there's this, and this is where maybe this always doesn't get connected for uh, people who are familiar with the word mass or, or who have seen the word mass as baggage. It's a proclamation of the kingdom and our, our joining, if we're using that epiclesis uh, portrayal, our responding to how we're going to now enact its nearness because we've experienced this thing. So there's a couple ramifications of this. The first, 
I would maybe call eschatology. And then the other interesting component is maybe something I'd call imagination. Okay, what do you mean by eschatology then? I mean, I kind of know what the word means, but it might be good to parse that out and discuss how the Eucharist is involved in an eschatology. Mm -hmm. It only is, in terms of Mass, if we see Mass as a sending forth for the enactment of the kingdom of God. Okay. And so as soon as you do that, you go, well, how did Jesus talk about the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God is here, it is near, it's also not yet. And so there's this spectrum and evolution of fulfillment towards an end okay right so eschatology Mm -hmm. is just how will things end or what's the the goal what's the the final component of the narrative and there's a lot of mystery in that and i realize as i define it there's a lot of doomsdayers that are probably really excited and (laughs) uh, that's not quite what i mean um, but if we wanted to use more big words, eschatology and teleo- teleology interact, that there's a, 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 an end, a vision, a goal, a purpose. Okay. Uh, that creation as contingent beings are moving towards. And so in Christianity, you'd call that the kingdom of God. Well, mass is a way of interacting with Eucharist so as to help move us towards that goal, that purpose, that vision. Okay. But also anticipate um, that how things are, are not how they will hopefully be. Okay. So it's kind of like, this is sort of a map or a picture saying, this is what it should look like. And then we can try to live into that. Yeah. And this is why a lot of Eucharist liturgy will um, use a phrase of final victory. Um, so until we come again and final victory or some variation mm-hmm. of that. And it's because they're, they're claiming that there's a mission associated with the meal that we just took okay. or that we're about to take, depending on where that falls in the liturgy. This is why I think this is also connected to the idea of imagination. So that eschatological uh, emphasis that we get in mass, mass for the kingdom, um, I think its primary focus is to inspire a certain kind of imagination. So the claim would be that when you take the meal, you're actually uh, experiencing a bit of a foretaste of what all things should be like, that that telos. Mm -hmm. And so you're experiencing through the elements, renewal, forgiveness, uh, an end of exile, if we were to use uh, that, that Hebrew language, redemption, salvation, hope, goodness, fullness. And so in this meal, we get a picture of what this should be like and how the whole world should work. Okay, so it's like we can imagine what that world would be, and the Mm -hmm. better our imaginations are, the more we would be able to live that out. Yeah, yeah. So it's about, you know, hey, we're going to take this thing that is for now, it's, it's for right now, especially in that it's going to help us enact that, but it's also giving us, you know, sort of like I, I, I use the language as of a dress rehearsal. Yeah. And we're having that experience so as to go out and better do this. So that's how it, it gives us that imagination. In this way, it's similar to the tent of meeting. Oh, you sure. And I know okay. I had said that I think Passover and Leviticus are both instrumental for understanding uh, how you how Eucharist came to be 
and kind of its role and function, what that's supposed to look like. Mm-hmm. And in the tent of meeting, uh, if we're going to use that metaphor, what happens there gives you an experience that is intended to infiltrate wherever you go next. So it's, it's about having something that helps you see what the future should be, but not just for like some sort of weird prophecy kind of thing. You see what the future ought to look like so that you can start building it now. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like we're given the blueprint. Yeah. At yeah. Eucharist. And we can start preparing. And so you start mm-hmm. building. Yeah. Right. I, I think of St. Francis's <laughs> prayer. You know, that prayer is such a good example of we're praying for uh, something that isn't yet so that we can start doing it. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Yeah. Well, that implies that we're not yet. But in, in that response, in that joining, it starts now, right? Mm-hmm. So, so the future comes a little bit more into the presence. And I think this is just generic language to what Jesus, how he talked about the kingdom of God. Oh, absolutely. Right. So uh, when you look at Eucharist, Eucharist from the angle of mass, it acts as that blueprint, as that signpost, you could say. You encounter a vision and then you become a signpost as well for how it will happen. And this is the the fun conversation of like, how will people see what the world's supposed to look like? Yeah. Well, through you, mm-hmm. that you're the signpost of it. I, I heard a quote one time, Anthony Bloom says, if the gospels were lost, they could be rewritten by looking at us. So they should be able to be rewritten by looking at us. And yeah. so that if we embody that, it, it should be apparent. We are the body of Christ. How do you tell by the way we are, by the way we act? Mm hmm. And, and so if we're going to use that, we would say that Eucharist, that it's the dress rehearsal for that. Mm-hmm. It's us uh, learning, but also experiencing in a form of mystery. Remember, we talked about sacrament as mystery uh, in some mysterious way that we can then go be that. So right. it can become more true and move from should be to is, you know. Both of these are eschatology and imagination. They also, we should throw in the word transformation because in the experience, in order to become the signpost and in order for that future reality to become part of the present through us, we're assuming that transformation has happened. And so it's like in Eucharist as mass, you get a glimpse of the image of this and it starts doing work on us and we get shaped into its form so we can become sort of witnesses of that experience itself. And, and if you think back to uh, Eucharist as Eucharist, the episode that we did, the point, and this is my Methodist background coming out, the point of Eucharist is not Eucharist. It's what Eucharist does, yeah. what it accomplishes. Okay, we do it so that we can make it happen. Yeah, Mass is a great example of it. Um, the end goal is not that you took the meal. It's yeah. that the meal is a vehicle to what it's meant to accomplish in the world and that's transformation language so we get a glimpse of god's outcome for the world and as a result it's going to get furthered by us Mm -hmm. we see what this is supposed to look like so we start embodying that future reality now and what we hope to happen because we've now experienced the thing we seek to be now so that that's the dress rehearsal for this divine 
teleological future. And if we do that, if we do Eucharist as Mass, and this is why if you have baggage with the word Mass, I get it. But don't don't let that dictate whether or not you can you can come from it or come at it from this angle. If we do this, the world starts becoming more as it's created to be. If we take it seriously. Yeah. So that's uh, Eucharist as Mass for the Kingdom, and it has that mission focus to it. I want to end this section with looking at Eucharist as communion. And this word is so ubiquitous that I, several times just in this episode alone, have intended to say Eucharist, but I said communion. I because did that too. <laughs> we just yeah. call it communion. It, we're so familiar with this in the modern Western church. But it is a specific form. And in the beginning, we had said, all of these words are not synonyms, right? but they're all usable. They all have a different edge to them. That, it's like a different emphasis depending yeah. on how you're supposed to interact with it then. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, the trouble with this one, though, is that it's so normalized that we just ref- think it refers to the meal itself. And we stop trying to understand what that angle is. And I think this is probably the most important angle because this is where it brings us together yeah, as it, a body. It, it makes it it makes it a shame that we've stopped understanding, you know, this is the, the, the curse of knowledge. The, mm-hmm. the problem with words is that they take on new meaning over time. And the more familiar you become with the word, the less familiar you become with what it actually means. Communion is the Greek word koinonia. And uh, I mean, I lived in an apartment complex once that was called koinonia. Oh, really? It's just, it was part of a seminary and you know that's a cool christian thing to do is call something koinonia uh koinonia also can just be understood as community if i was to offer a more formal definition koinonia is communing with god and with one another and so uh if we i don't like using this because it plays into a a notion of God that I don't like, but there's a vertical component and a horizontal component. It might be good to think of it as spiral. Okay. Spiral. Spiral. It's harder Mm -hmm. to map that out on a whiteboard. Yeah, it is. But no, it's really much more of a spiral. um, So that, that understanding of community koinonia, somehow in the meal, it captures that with one another and with the divine all at the same time. Mm-hmm. Now, this would be why, at least at least in the traditions I'm familiar with, that a lot of the liturgy used for Eucharist uses plural, first-person plural language, so we. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of important things about communion. So let, let's dive through a couple. But the first one, if you understand Eucharist as communion, Eucharist is not then individual. Right. Absolutely. And I've made a case that, uh, you can take Eucharist by yourself, right? You cannot take communion by yourself. Right. And obviously that's a little bit black and white, but that's my, that's my stance there. Mm -hmm. I'm taking a hard stance. So you can't take communion by yourself. And that's simply to say, because it's koinonia. 
So right. it, it assumes there's other people. Yeah, it has to be involved. other humans. There has to be other humans present it, to create this. Yeah, in yeah. order for it to have that. So you can take Eucharist by yourself. Sure, sure. yeah, you, mm-hmm. that's all fine. But to commune with the body uh, of, of Messiah, of the divine, of the bodies of other people, that implies that there's other people, mm-hmm. right? Sure. So um, if we're looking at it from that angle, Eucharist is not individual but then we can keep going with this eucharist is not individual eucharist is also not just about here so the koinonia communion also transcends just the the geographical proximity of where you are right right so there's this language that you're also communing with all of the church mm-hmm. and that's a powerful image so when you're gathered body Koinonias, you're also now attaching yourself to the koinonia that has existed before and that will exist after you. Right. And that's kind of going back to that memorial idea, but it's also here too, where it's like you're connecting this body, us, but then all the churches and also the history of it, and then also into mm-hmm. the future of what will the, as it transcends and includes and gets bigger and bigger. But the Eucharist is also not just about the church. Right. And the koinonia forces us, the, the communion image forces us to consider that we're also communing with all things. Yeah. And I think we use this uh, during the Great Thanksgiving episode, but communion, especially understood with koinonia, implies that the whole world is present on our behalf. Mm-hmm. And this is where this starts moving us into... A particular disposition of Eucharist as communion, because our invitation is to transcend just ourselves, to transcend just our current space, to transcend just thinking this is about the church Mm -hmm. and include more and more and more until it encompasses everything. So when you participate in Eucharist as communion, it's not just about the koinonia you're experiencing in that moment and not just about your the koinonia you're experiencing with the divine all at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's about what kind of effect and this beautiful responsibility of which you are now a part because you took that meal. So when we see Eucharist as communion, the second place I think it invites us to go is to see that this meal embraces all all aspects of life. All everything, all creation. The the yeah. vision, right, embodied in, in the specific ritual, which, you know, is sacramental and is also a sacrament. Uh-huh. It should be impacting how you interact with everything. Yeah. And first and foremost, the other people who you're taking the meal with. Sure. Right? Like that's, yeah, that, that should change your disposition towards these folks. Mm-hmm. It should in, help you interact with how you relate to the divine. Um, but if, if that meal is also transcending and including more and more and more and more out to everything, well, that's going to now shape how you interact with everything. And if we want to go back to that vertical and horizontal language, when you take Eucharist and this is where it might be helpful because we're going like, okay, but how does it what is it showing us to do with all of creation? Well, you got to go back to Eucharist as Eucharist, like okay. all the things that it includes. 
And now communion invites us to see that it involves everything, but it's also dependent on that divine component is so you receiving something. So epiclesis, right? We're yeah. saying God has acted, God has caused, mm-hmm. we're receiving and we're receiving so that we get sent forth to continue what we've received. So we receive a gift so that we become a gift. Right. And, and um, I think maybe we didn't include this in the Eucharist episode, but uh, Eucharist is just eucharizomai which is you, one way you could translate that is the good gift. Yeah. So you are receiving a gift, you a Eucharist, a good gift, mm-hmm. but you're also becoming that good gift. And what are you, what are you becoming that good gift in relation to? Well, everything. So that you can then enact the good gift. This mm-hmm. is the spiralness of it. Yep. It's like you receive the gift to become the gift so that you can give the gift out so that it can go back into becoming the gift and, mm-hmm. and going around and around. And because you've experienced that tent of meeting, blueprint, yeah. mm-hmm. dress rehearsal, you experience all of that goodness that comes with Eucharist and the meal. Uh, you then become an instrument of it. Yeah. And I think you have to then recognize the gift in everything else and in everyone mm. else too so that now it, it prevents you from objectifying anything because now you see everything has received that gift and is giving that gift you are also receiving it so you're receiving it both from god and also from each other because you're then able give, to give that out to each other and then to all creation as well yeah. it, it, that's the emphasis i think of communion no, i mm-hmm. mean it's the the presence of other bodies but particularly what we're seeing here is that the epiclesis, the Thanksgiving, uh, the remembrance and the mass, Mm -hmm. it's all about the whole thing. You have to include the whole thing. So you receive this body and this blood so that you become this body and this blood. And why? Well, for the sake of everything, I think it's also important to point out, including you. Yeah. Yeah, you are right. a part of that as well. You need to consider yourself worthy of being at the table. Yeah. But there's a responsibility that comes with the gift when we commune in this way. Yeah. That's, that's what koinonia communion, I think, is all about. One thing that's interesting and maybe a challenge we could pose, and Amy and I both have uh, a, an angst against the drive-by communion when the little cups with the thing. Oh. Um, and... A theological reason why would be communion, because the tradition is that you would share from one loaf, and so that the very elements you're consuming are actually an example of the koinonia. Yeah, I think that's important. So you'd have one loaf and one cup, and so we're all, it kind of gives us a means, like a physical means to go, oh yeah, yeah, we're all communing together. Mm-hmm. And if we're not, then this isn't actually communion. Yeah, I think it, to split it up makes it an isolated and sterile kind of thing. That to mm-hmm. bring it together makes that sense of, like you were saying, bringing it together, it's one loaf, it's one cup, so are we. We all need to participate in that same thing. Yeah. So there's this inspiration that should happen of, you know, recognizing what you are receiving, uh, recognizing how Eucharist speaks to the human condition because God's imminent is presence, epiclesis. And then through all of those things that are happening, you realize this is a sort of dress rehearsal to inspire your imagination. And that's actually going to impact how the world works. And then you get to communion and you realize 
And this happens by me and you and that person and all of these people deciding to be this body together. Mm -hmm. And the unity of the body is really important in order for Eucharist to actually happen. You know, and you could maybe make a case that none of this will happen if the body is fractured at all. And this is all Pauline language. Mm -hmm. Um, This is even the way that Jesus speaks to his disciples. There's this togetherness. Y'all have to do it together. Yeah. And to see that all of that doesn't just stop with y'all. It's y'all slowly becomes, the more and more you take the meal, y'all slowly becomes, oh gosh, everything. Right. So that is Eucharist as Epiclesis, Divine Liturgy. Eucharist as Mass for the Kingdom and Mission. And Eucharist as Communion. But we still have one more piece to consider we do and that is this whole weird bit about first corinthians we're going back now we started at the beginning kind of bringing it up little introduction there now we're going to go back and explain how all this comes down then right to first corinthians where paul talks about that with the uh, corinthian congregation so that's where we are going to go next